Welcome, everybody. My name is uh, Reverend Hung Shir, and uh, I'm from the Chinese Mahayana lineage. I've been a monk since uh, 1976. So, getting up there in years. I actually did all my Buddhist training here in this country. Met my teacher in religion in San Francisco, Master Xuanhua, Gold Mountain Monastery, down on 15th Street in Valencia, in the mission. So an urban monastic. Our main monastery is up at the City of 10,000 Buddhas. So if you get back on 101 and go north to Ukiah and then turn right, you find it. Great vegetarian restaurant, they tell me. Anybody been there? Yes. Santa Rosa Press Democrat says among the 10 best restaurants in Northern California. Now that's not the 10 best Buddhist vegetarian restaurants in Northern California. 10 best restaurants in Northern California. Not that I'm biased, mind you. Don't go on Tuesdays because they buy vegetables and it's closed. Okay, so. But you drive in through that big Chinese gate and there's the Buddhist vegetarian restaurant. Tonight I want to talk about compassion and where it comes from and how we can step closer towards it. One of the things about my formation as a monk is that I did a pilgrimage at one point. And I'd like to share some stories from that pilgrimage that uh, taught me about great compassion, what it is, what it isn't, how to get closer to it. Um, the pilgrimage that I took uh, began in uh, 19, 1977. And I had been through a lot of, judging by the faces of many of you, uh, I went through a, a political transformation back in the 60s of thinking that idealism could change the world for the better, of course. And I was um, not in Chicago the night that the, that the uh, police rioted at the D Democratic National Convention, but I was watching on TV and watching my friends' heads get broken at the end of big heavy clubs with big burly people behind those clubs. And it kind of, that kind of reoriented my understanding of, of how power really worked. And I thought, well, if it's really who's stronger, then that's, that's not, that kind of dims my idealism. What really changes things? And yet, I still hadn't connected in my heart that peaceful heart can make a peaceful world. My heart was decidedly not peaceful. Something happened again uh, two years later, which was that my father passed away. And my father had been a war hero, a decorated war hero, and a great athlete. He held the all-Canada 100-meter dash record for years. And my father was a, on the, a hockey player on the farm team of the Montreal Canadiens, and he was a tough guy. And yet I watched my dad pass away. Uh, he died of diabetes-related illnesses, and I realized that that muscle strength ultimately had to lie down in the face of other issues. So the question for me was, what is strong and what lasts? It got deeper now. And my response to my father's passing was not very skillful. I basically stayed, stayed numb. I tried to numb my mind for about a year using whatever substances were available. Back in the 60s, maybe you all know what that meant. So, um, but that wound up being making me dopey. I was doped, and dopey was certainly not the way to change things. So the question remained, and the world was getting progressively, progressively more violent. That was the time of the Vietnam War, and I had a low draft number, and so I'm giving you my 
kind of the background for what will launch into a spiritual biography. And bit by bit, I realized that hedonism was not going to change anything. That political activism without the power of money and troops was not going to change anything. And so the question remained, do you just take the world as it is, or how do you actually change things? And at that point, I met my teacher in religion, Master Shrenhua, who was absolutely uncivil. This is someone who obeyed another kind of law and yet lived in a way that was fearless, free, and yet the keynote to it was deeply, deeply kind. And if you ask, what was it that was, I mean, what about this man? He grew up in Manchuria, in Harbin, Jilin province, northern China, farmer's son. What, was, what, they, what had he done that could make him uncivil? Meaning, if you were phony to him, he would look right through you. No politeness whatsoever. He was as wild as the mountains in Jilin province. He was not polite at all. And yet there was this gentle, delicate sensitivity to, to the heart that was infinitely kind. And it was... I'd never met anybody who lived outside of society but was so rooted and connected, alive, and yet not polite. What I discovered was that when his mother passed away, this young man at age 19 had spent three years meditating by her graveside. It's a traditional Chinese practice called shou xiao, which is, means observing filial respect. And not everybody did it. It was considered too radical, meaning root. Too, that was far out even for Chinese in the late 20th century middle 20th century. And uh, yet that's what he did. And why did he do that? Well, I needed to know that because here was somebody who was very peaceful. And yet everywhere he went, you could see people change because you had to deal with this man who was just so authentically awake and yet didn't observe the niceties of, you know, pol- you know compliments and phony talk and, you know, very different kind of rules on this man's life. So, I thought, if I can be like him, I can actually change things. Aha! He's not drugged, he's not politically active, but everywhere he goes, things transform. It's his heart. That was my conclusion. It was his heart. So I thought, hmm, interesting made the connection between deepening relationships and this rootedness and connectedness that I saw in him that changed things. So now, I, like most of us, grew up, especially guys, you know, for me, don't fence me in was my creed. John Wayne was my model, right? Jump on your horse, I'm out of here. Hi-ho, silver, you know, down the road. Give me the car keys, Dad, I'm out of here. Vroom, you know. Age 16, get your driver's license, gone. Ooh. You know, whether you look back or not, and, you know. So, not connected to filial respect to my folks in the least. So, drew near this monk, and uh, there was... At this point, there was some serious weapons research going on, and I had already gotten a draft deferment. I didn't have to go. I had a bad back at that point. But I realized I had friends who had gone and who died, and I thought, well, now I'm a monk. Um, What can I do? And uh, the abbot told me that, uh, he said, you know, peaceful mind, peaceful world. So I thought, hmm. Maybe I can make my mind peaceful. At that point, I learned to bow. My college roommate had become a monk before me, 
and he was practicing a practice that I was at this point I had I'd finished my MA at Cal in Asian languages and uh, as a graduate student I use words like confetti words like popcorn right remember when you were in school right you just inhale books you know speed reading remember Evelyn Wood remember do you remember a single word that you sped read <laughs> stacks of books right yeah cliff notes and all right so when I got to the to the monastery, my roommate, who is now a Buddhist monk, Hung Yo, former David Bernstein from Providence, Rhode Island, was now a Buddhist monk. He said, "Well, you ought to slow down." He said, "You totally disrespect words. For you, communication is just bogus." He says, "Bankrupt." He said, "You ought to slow down." Well, how do you do that? Why don't you bow to sutras? Bow to sutras. I've read thousands of sutras. You haven't read a one of them. Bow to a sutra. How do you do that? One word at a time. Come on, get real. I, I speed read, he says. No, you don't. It's maybe fast, but there's no reading involved. Right? He said, open the, open the text. Thus, I have, etc., heard at one time the Buddha dwelt at Shravasti, eight bows, in the garden of the Jada Grove, twelve bows, etc., bowing to every word and contemplating them. Bowing, there was in Chinese, but the idea was slowing down. I thought, wow, man, I actually read that. And I walked away and the sutra was inside me. So after about six months of that, um, I realized that I was actually changing and my heart was less frantic, searching for a way to change the world. Right? I was changing. The world was different. So I started a pilgrimage. Um, my teacher's teacher, Master Shuyin, who lived to be uh, 120, as a matter of fact, Master Empty Cloud Shuyin, passed away in 1956, had done a pilgrimage when he was uh, in his 40s and his mother had died in childbirth and he felt responsible for her passing and he had never known her. So he revived this ancient practice in Chinese Buddhism of taking three steps and a full bow to the ground. Three steps and a full bow. It was called Three Steps, One Bow, San Bu Bai in Chinese. It was a, a kind of bowing pilgrimage. And so he started in Putoshan, Mount Potola, which is off the, the Chinese coast near Ningbo, in the South China Sea. And he bowed, three steps, one bow, all the way to Wutaishan, Five Peaks Mountain, in far off Shanxi province. Basically, it's kind of like going from Asbury Park, New Jersey, to Seattle, 3,000 miles. And... Uh, he profoundly changed in that process, and he felt that by so doing, he would repay his parents' kindness, his mother's kindness, in giving birth to him and giving her life to him. So that was his, and I was very impressed by that. I was moved by that. So I thought, I said to the abbot, um, uh, Shirfu, could I um, make a pilgrimage for world peace and really try to change myself, slow down? And he said, be a jerk, he said. You'll become a traffic hazard. He said, what are you talking about? You think helping Buddhism by becoming a hamburger on the side of the road is going to help anything? He said, ridiculous. He said, besides, it's not time yet. What? Not time yet. What does that mean? Okay, never mind. So I asked five, six more times, and uh, it just was more clear to me this is something I should be doing. And finally, one day, uh, another man showed up at the monastery uh, and he was uh, a couple years older than I was but looked wearing the same Pendleton shirt that I had worn as a layman and driving the same kind of pickup truck that I used to drive. It was a quite amazing correspondence. He came in and said, uh, I'm sp uh, what is this place? It's a Gold Mountain Monastery. He says, yeah, I think I'm supposed to be here. I said, well, there's a lecture tonight. So that night the abbot said, hey, Guajan, 
went, fruit of the truth. I said, you sure, fool? He said, what about that stupid vow you were going to make? Now's the time. Uh, uh, I would like to bow from uh, our new monastery in Los Angeles up to the city of 10,000 Buddhas. And this young man stood up and said, and I think I'd like to go along with him and help him. Somebody said, well, who, who are you? You know, he says, well, can, uh, is that, what is that? Can I do that? You know, and the other said, all right, he's come, you can start. <laughs> right. Okay. So this young man shaved his head, became a monk, and the two of us started out in this pilgrimage. And we started in South Pasadena and uh, bowed three steps, one bow. Two years and nine months later, we wound up in Ukiah. We were on Highway 1 uh, all the way along. And uh, the other thing that was the, the criteria of this pilgrimage was that, uh, was that I made a vow of silence, and I was silent for six years around the pilgrimage, three years during it and three years after. And the reason for that was I was in theater. I was an actor. And along with being a speed reader and... Uh, I, my thing was languages. I have, I have good ears and weak eyes, and so I was good at languages. And so I had a variety of languages rattling around in there. And I could lie in a whole bunch of languages. You know. <laughs> the quality of theater is the illusion that you cast, right? So I was in, I did a lot of Broadway musicals, and I was, J. Pierpont, right? How to Succeed in Business, and then uh, Sky Masterson and Guys and Dolls, right? Luck be a lady tonight. You know, it's like old ghosts, boy, oh boy. And uh, in Damn Yankees, I was uh, Mr. Applegate, the devil, right? Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. Let's bury those, right? So anyway, to be a monk, you have to straighten out your tongue, straighten out your mind. So my name, my Dharma name, which you get a Dharma name when you take refuge, was fruit, result of the truth. So the abbot said, uh, you lie too much, he said, <laughs> in his inimitable direct way. Uh, nobody had ever said that. That's a very impolite thing to say. <coughs> and good thing my teacher wasn't polite. So I got the message. And so he said, whether or not you finish your pilgrimage is less important than that you can keep your silence vow. So I kept a vow of silence, and the other, this young man, this monk, the other monk, was the, uh, it's called the Dharma protector. So this is all to get you to kind of connect with uh, the pilgrimage that, that uh, provided some stories for this, this uh, insight about compassion that I'd like to share. The um, people ask, what did you get out of that? It's funny, it depends. It depends on who, you, who saw it to determine what, was, what I was doing. People, I, I grew up a Methodist in Toledo, Ohio. Right? And the Protestant Methodists, my parents included, who saw this pilgrimage or who heard about it would go, whatever for? What in the world for? <laughs> Roman Catholics and Jews who saw this pilgrimage would go, oh, the devotion. Oh, it's so heartwarming. Look at that. What a sacrifice, they'd say. So very different kind of, uh, kind of response, depending on who saw it. And a large number of people said, Hey, weirdo, what are you doing kissing the ground, man? That's weird. So a lot of different responses. So anyway, the whole experience, what did I get out of it? Well, I got really aware of the contents of my mind especially being silent. And the key is having a teacher and having a dharma, having a method, and, and doing, applying the method. The, the experience of the pilgrimage was bowing eight hours a day. We would travel a mile a day, roughly, up the coast of California on Highway 1. And uh, just doing this slow, rhythmic movement while reciting the name of the sutra. I, I actually carried the Avatamsaka Sutra on my back. I had a pack and I carried a little, little version of it. Still bowing to the sutra, one word at a time. And this rhythmic, slow outdoors, I lived outdoors for three years, um, allowed me to review 
very specifically everything I'd done for the first 25 years of my life. Um, how unexpected that when you pull your senses back, when, you trans- when your eyes that run out to scan, and your ears that are running out finding the good sounds and avoiding the bad sounds, when those are disengaged from their objects, what happens is it seems, and this is, I'm just reporting, I, to say I know what's going on would be not true, it seems like the tapes of some inner tape library play back. And so I'd be in, let's say, in Big Sur, near Lucia, for example. And Lucia is, you know, cascading cliffs down to big tide. One car an hour, the occasional seagull, you know, bowing out there in the middle of nothing. And bowing down, and suddenly, every sense intact, remembering the time that I scolded my parents and told them to drop dead. Why? They had grounded me, and I had a double date, and I was driving, and I had sassed back, and that was a taboo, and I wasn't supposed to do that, and so I was sent to my room and grounded. And, I, of course, I had buried that in the fact that I said, drop dead! You know, and all of the temper and the, the temperature change and the clenching came back to me, bowing on Highway 1 in Big Sur, as if it had just happened. And I would stand up and go, that was weird, you know. And then bow down again and have the next scene fast forward and go through these tapes of the things I had done, especially the negative things, but also the good occasionally. And it would take this complete effort to say, um, that was illusory. Come back, bow, just bow. Do the method again. Pay no attention, you know, to the movie on the screen inside. And not always, but occasionally these bows would be accompanied by some vivid replaying, as if inner tapes are playing back. What I did with that was realize that, true or not, my, my observation was that our six senses are very much like sponges, recording and sucking in absolutely everything that we put in front of our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and in the mind. So how interesting. And it really kind of chastened me and said, boy, be more mindful of what you level in front of your eyes, because you got it. It's in there. And when the Buddha says things like, cherish life, don't kill. It's like, when we do that, if we kill, or have a drop-dead thought, which is the prelude to killing, the thought is already, the seed is already planted. When we do that, we've planted one. And it'll come back. It's there, we got it. Likewise, when we bestow, when we cherish life, when we nurture, when we foster somebody else's life conditions, we got it. It's there. That's called blessings. That's where they come from. But it's completely, coldly, analytically impartial. Did you do it? Got it. Right? That's called seeds of karma. And our mind is just like a garden, and it will take those seeds. Otherwise, how could I be bowing outside, you know, on a Wednesday morning in the fog in Big Sur and suddenly be back in my 16-year-old anger? Just poof, and then gone. Now, I kind of think that once those tapes play back, I think they're gone. There's a, fr- a phrase in the Mahayana that says, big disasters become small, small disasters disappear. So... Who's to say? You know, now, suppose we're really mindful. Now, do you have to bow to have this experience? No, I think meditating, being mindful at work as we drive. As long as we take those six senses and calm them, prune them, smooth them out. Okay, so this is some connection with peaceful mind, peaceful world. Anyway, so... Um, I remember bowing um, 
when uh, Master Hua, our teacher, would come down to Los Angeles about once a month, and wherever the other monk and I had gone on our pilgrimage, we would make a marker and then get in somebody's car, drive down to L.A. and spend the weekend with the abbot, hear the Dharma, kind of get our batteries recharged, and then go back out to where we were. And we would count the number of bows we did. We'd bow in front of the temple and count them up, and then when we got back, we would start there and then count on our beads. We'd go, you know, one, two, three, one bow, one, two, three, one bow, and then bow ahead, however many we'd bowed at, uh, down in uh, L.A. So we wound up bowing in front of the temple for, you know, Saturday and Sunday before we go back. I remember one time I got a lesson on compassion, um, bowing there, and it was already four o'clock, and we'd bow until five or six, and then go in and listen to the Dharma. And it was uh, Saturday afternoon, and down the street, it was uh, Huntington Drive in South Pasadena. I don't know if there's any Los Angelinos here. But uh, these two Hell's Angels came by, and they were... Big scars, big beard, big knife, you know, chains, black leather, oily, you know, axle grease embedded underneath their fingernails, remember? So uh, they had, they'd already started their drinking for the, after, for the weekend, and they were pretty far, pretty far gone. And they drove by, and we heard the squeak. Oh my gosh, they saw us. You know. They come back, circle of bikes, and then park them, and climb up. They wind up on the porch of the monastery. The monastery is an old converted school. They're standing on the porch, kind of getting ready to figure out what they're going to do with these two bald-headed, dress-wearing weirdos on the sidewalk. You know. Maybe the weekend's fun has started already. You know. They're kind of like thinking, hey, I mean, you could kick him in the ass. You know. So we're going, <coughs> okay, better be sincere while we bow. You know. <laughs> Like, uh, it's, it's okay, you know. <laughs> so bowing and trying to concentrate and try not to fantasize. You know? And so these guys are kind of pumping themselves up and you can feel it's like they're getting ready for some action. And right at the point where you could kind of feel the energy turn, it's like, oh, here they come. The door to the monastery opens and out comes this five foot eight Chinese monk wearing a knit skull cap and a yellow robe, it's the, it's the abbot's, Master Hua. So I remember, now I'm not supposed to be looking around. You know, I'm supposed to be bowing, right? So I'm kind of going, <laughs> watching this scene, you know. What if they pulverize the abbot, you know? What, what, what's my job? What am I supposed to do, you know? And the monk behind me, the, my Dharma protector, had a ta- he's a black belt in Taekwondo, but he was forbidden from using punches and kicks by the abbot. The abbot said, as soon as you throw the first punch, you're no longer my disciple. So he had it harder than I did. I'm a wimp. I can't fight. But he had to really decide, what if they punch the abbot? So I'm looking out of the corner of my eye, and these guys are like leaning on the rail, leaning on the rail of the monastery, thinking about coming down. And I look over, and here's the abbot leaning on the rail right beside them, right, imitating their postures, looking around. How you doing, guys? Leaning right there. He doesn't speak English, right? So he's leaning, he's kind of, I look over, he's got his arm around one of them, you know, and he's like, he's pointing out, pointing out the monks who are bowing out there on the sidewalk laughing at us, right? And I go, yeah, it's pretty, you know, <laughs> you know, like that. And the next thing I know, he's got him in the monastery and the door closes, you know, and we're going, what in the world? <laughs> and so we're out there bowing, thinking, okay, just bow, just, you know, be mindful. What are you doing? What's your thoughts, you know? So I'm hearing this laughter coming out of the monastery and, you know, and it's like 10, 15 minutes and the door opens and these two guys come out and they're wagging their tails like puppies. They're just so happy. They got their arms full of gifts. They got, you know, a cup of tea and some cookies and they got recitation beads and they're going, oh, thanks a lot, Father. It's, yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, yeah, no, that's okay. No, I got it already. Thanks a lot. Yeah, okay, well, so long now. You know, and, and the abbot comes out and he sticks out his hand. And I have this visual image of this black leather jacket arm, you know, with greasy fingernails and this yellow monastic robe, shaking hands, you know, bonded. And these guys, these guys just get on their bikes and they're looking at each other going, he's a nice guy. What are you going to do with all this crap? I don't know. Nice. Drive away in their bikes. 
And I'm left with this, this realization of my big self and the big others. You know, friend and enemy, stranger and family. And that is not great compassion. And I, you know, the abbot's example is, is so fresh, you know, hands. Now, one of the thing, one of the practices in the Mahayana, in the tradition that I'm in, is uh, Guanyin Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara. It's Guanyin. Guanyin has in has many iconographic forms and many ways that Guanyin appears, many names too. In uh, Vietnamese, it's Guan Po Ta. In Japanese, it's Kanzeyong Bosatsu, also known as Kanon. Right? In uh, Tibetan, what is it? You know, Chanrezi, also known as Tara. Okay, same, same figure. In uh, Cantonese, it's Guan Yim. In Mandarin, it's Guan Shiyin Pusa, the Bodhisattva who the awakened being who contemplates the voices, who hears the cries of the world. And Guanyin often appears with a thousand hands and a thousand eyes, and there's an, an eye in the palm of each hand and a thousand ears, as I said, many heads. And the idea is that Guanyin embodies great compassion. And Guanyin has vows that whoever calls on her name, whoever recites the name, Namo Guan Shiyin Pusa, I return to, I take refuge in the awakened being who hears the sounds of the world. Whoever recites the name, Guanxi and Pusa, will get a hand, will be saved from suffering, will be brought across. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's all kinds of suffering. Certainly here at Spirit Rock, we hear a lot about the truth of suffering. Guanyin Bodhisattva is a major uh, figure in East Asian Buddhism. <coughs> Not just in China, but in Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. You can find Guanyin everywhere, now in the West. So I always have that image of those two hands shaking when I think of Guanyin Bodhisattva. Now, anybody know the Heart Sutra? Ever heard of the Heart of Prajnaparamita Sutra? When the Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara, was cultivating the profound Prajnaparamita, she illuminated the five skandhas and saw that they were empty and crossed over all suffering and difficulty. That's how the Heart Sutra begins. And the idea is that Avalokiteshvara, Guan Shiyin Bodhisattva, appears in the Heart Sutra. She's the person, the deity, the divinity first invoked. And it says when she was practicing the profound Prajnaparamita, the wisdom that goes beyond, she illuminated the five skandhas and saw that they were all empty and she crossed over all suffering and difficulty. How did that happen? What are the skandhas? The skandhas are the Buddha's description of the body, of the personality. What is a person? The Buddha said, body and mind. Body is made up of earth, air, fire, and water. When we were meditating earlier, we went through the four elements, right? Earth, connecting to the ground, air, fire, water, universally the same. Every mammal shares those elements. Every whale shares those elements. Every insect has a body made up of earth, air, fire, and water. Temperature, liquid, space, and substance. Same. And Guanyin Bodhisattva's contemplation is called Tong Ti Da Bei in Chinese. Single body, great compassion. The substance is the same. With ancestors, how many generations? Genghis Khan had the same body. Mao Zedong had the same body. Your grandpa had the same substance. Right? Single substance, great compassion. One body, great compassion. No difference. And when, you, when Guanyin Bodhisattva reflects, when we do our observation, our vipassana watching of thoughts rise and fall, if we empty out those thoughts, don't move before them, let them go, what do we discover? We discover that 
they are the same. Bodies are the same. In substance, they're not different. Guanyin Bodhisattva reflects and sees that. That's the first skanda. Then you go, you empty out feelings, thoughts, what are called samskaras, which are deeper thought structures, and consciousness itself. And step by step, you empty out, empty out. That's Prajnaparamita. That's how the Heart Sutra works. You empty out. And it says you get to the point where you realize in your meditation, you realize it, that there's nothing to get. What a radical awareness. Why is there nothing to get? Who is there to get it? You empty out self. You empty out others. It's a gradual, slow process. right? And what happens when you're left with this emptiness? Do you wind up with nothing? No. Nature doesn't let vacuum stay empty. What comes back when it's truly empty is this awareness of the sameness and a deeper connection with every living being. And that's how prajna becomes karuna. Great wisdom becomes great compassion. Right? When you empty out the self and anything that can get something, then fear goes away. Right? Desire goes away. Anger and delusion go away. But you have to really do that work. And the sutra talks about Guanyin Bodhisattva having done that. And that's how Guanyin Bodhisattva becomes great compassion. It's through profound, cold analysis that turns into infinite, loving, warm compassion. So prajna and karuna, wisdom and compassion, function as a pair. How do you get to compassion? Through wisdom. How do you get to wisdom? Look into it. Analyze it. That's what we're doing when we sit. So I ran into this wonderful article um, about, what's it called? It's, this was from a reprint in the Uthni Reader, Scanning the Monk. Anybody read this one? Any of the teachers on Monday night? This is an Uthni Reader reprint. The author's name is Mark Ian Barash, not to be confused with James Barras, B-A-R-A-S-C-H. And he writes about Mathieu Ricard. Mathieu Ricard is this uh, uh, French intellectual who has, with his father, um, begun to analyze the mind using Tibetan Buddhist methods. And he's done 10,000 hours of contemplation of compassion. And when they, then they did a, uh, an MRI. They used our tools, 21st century tools, to analyze his brain waves. And they would show him pictures of things, let me read it to you, things like peeling skin off of burn victims, which is uh, a, a, here he says, uh, during this practice, Ricard's brain, let's see, I'll go take a step back. When he entered the MRI tube, Ricard entered a meditation based on compassion, quote, for all beings, friends and loved ones, strangers and enemies alike. It's compassion with no agenda that excludes no one. You generate this quality of loving and let it soak the mind. It's called Tongti Dabe. Guanyin Bodhisattva, same body, great compassion. And he was focusing on Avalokiteshvara, Guanyin. During this practice, Ricard's brain showed greatly increased activity in the left middle frontal gyrus, never heard of that word, G-Y-R-U-S, an area tied to joy and enthusiasm. In other tests, Ricard proved to be remarkably adept at perceiving split-second changes in facial muscle expression of emotion, an ability known to correlate with empathy. Most tellingly, when he was shown a film clip of severe burn victims having dead skin painfully stripped from their bodies, hyphen, or dash, a clip used in psychology labs to trigger disgust, dash, right? So this is a, obviously has a charge on, this is the nastiest, hardest picture to absorb that they can find. He reported instead a sense of caring and concern mixed with a not unpleasant, strong, poignant sadness. So the article goes on to talk about how they uh, tested all kinds of folks using these different uh, 
using making very un- loud, unpleasant, sudden noises, and watching people react with anger, fear, disgust, aggression, anxiety. And they, they map out a bell curve with 100 subjects. And then they put Ricard, Matthew Ricard, the Tibetan, who's now a Tibetan, he's a disciple of Dalai Lama. They mapped him, and his left frontal lobe activity was so far off the chart that it was by himself. He has gone through 10,000 hours of contemplating Avalokiteshvara and compassion. So his conclusion, there's a great, a great uh, quote here. Sharing the MIT stage with the Dalai Lama himself, uh, Professor Davidson, who did this experiment, this exam, um, scanned Matthew Ricard during the compassion meditation. His reading was entirely off the curve in the area of positive emotion, the most extreme result ever recorded. Davidson, Professor Davidson quoted the Tibetan spiritual leader's own contention that, quote, the wiring in our brain is not static, not irrevocably fixed. Our brains are adaptable. At MIT, applause, even cheers, burst from the audience, not the way a thousand neuroscientists might usually respond to intriguing lab results. It was more like he'd, they just heard a new declaration of human independence and maybe they had. So, great article, um, Scanning the Monk by Mark Ian Barash. Okay, so Avalokiteshvara, Guan Shiyin, is the, the Bodhisattva, the divinity, <coughs> who is um, connected with great compassion. And like the Heart Sutra says, she illuminated the five skandhas, our bodies and minds, saw that they are all empty, and thus crossed over suffering and difficulty. So that pilgrimage showed me how far I had to go, and how much I still attach to notions of self and other, friend and enemy, likes and dislikes. And it has to be, our emptying out has to be thorough, regular, and impartial. When it is, that what reve- what's revealed, what we see is the deeper connection, universal connection to all living beings. As much as I don't want to be anybody's dinner, I don't want to turn any creature into my dinner. You know, you apply it that way. As much as I don't like to be gossiped about, I don't gossip if I can remember how much it hurt. So, anyway, I wanted to share a song um, written by, we have been listening to Jennifer Berezan earlier. Do people know her song, She Carries Me? It's a song for Guanyin, Avalokiteshvara. Please join me. The chorus goes like this. She carries me. She carries me. She carries me. To the other side She carries me She carries me That's it She carries me To the other side You do it? I'll tell you when to come in. She is a boat she is a light high on a hill in dark of night. She is a way, she is deep, she is the dark where angels sleep high on a hill. Where peace abides, she carries me to the other side. Join me. She carries me, she carries me, 
she carries me to the other side. She carries me, she carries me, she carries me to the other side. And though I walk through valleys deep and shadows chase me in my sleep on rocky cliffs I stand alone I have no name I have no home With broken wings I reach to fly She carries me To the other side Here we go She carries me She carries me she carries me to the other side. She carries me. She carries me. She carries me to the other side. A thousand eyes, a thousand ears to hear my cries. She is the gate, she is the door, she leads me through and back once more. When day has dawned, when death is nigh, she carries me to the other side. Last time, she carries me, she carries me, she carries me to the other side. She carries me, she carries me, she carries me to the other side. Crosses over all suffering and misery. I think I see some young people coming in. Hi there. You want to join us? Grab, grab a place, grab a seat. Okay, great. Well, um, I had a, a lot to talk about, about Guanyin, but um, it's essentially the, the same idea that. <coughs> peaceful world starts with a peaceful mind, and peaceful mind results from emptying out. And if we don't have a practice, then we don't even notice that our mind is so full. Thoughts rise, we don't watch them. They go, we grab them, and they go anyway. So meditation, having a practice, is the way that we tune in, we plug in, we listen in, and we can see, oh, really, that was an angry thought. But it didn't stay. What's the point of hanging on? Emptying, emptying. So emptiness in Buddhism is actually a verb. It's a gerund. You empty out. It's emptying. It's not a, the Buddha didn't establish emptiness as a philosophical position. Right? That's ridiculous. That ain't empty. No. So it's a practice for meditators. So, um, 
I just wanted to say that um, next <coughs> Thursday, actually, it's the 24th, I'll be uh, subbing for James over in Berkeley at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. I happen to live there. And uh, East, East Bay, Spirit Rock East Bay has been meeting at the Berkeley Monastery for, for 10 years. Um, you didn't know that, did you? We had our 10th anniversary two days ago. And uh, every Thursday night at 7.30, Spirit Rock East Bay comes and uh, does pretty much what we're doing here. James is a terrific uh, Dharma speaker. Anyway, what I thought I was going to do is um, I have some really compelling pictures of Guanyin Bodhisattva. And you should know that a certain number of them are the Blessed Virgin, the Blessed you know, Mother Mary. Um, of Roman Catholicism. I spent um, one of the best weeks of my life this last summer at Montserrat Monastery in Barcelona, 4,000 feet above Barcelona. And that's where the Black Madonna, the original Black Madonna image is. And the Black Madonna is this wooden image of, of Virgin Mary. And you blink your eyes and it's Guanyin Bodhisattva I promise. Come see for yourself. Um, Montserrat is this. Uh, they get, mind you, Spirit Rock's busy, right? Parking lot issues, turning off of the San Geronimo Road. Montserrat has three million pilgrims a year. Imagine. And they have to go up a funicula. They've got to go up a cable car. Uh, there are 60 monks, 60 Benedictine monastics who mostly take care of the guests. So you staff members, you think you got it tough. Man. Three million pilgrims who come up to pay their respects to this marvelous wooden image that's about twice as big as this and uh, has a tremendous history. It's got an amazing history. Anyway, um, I was able to spend a week there as a guest of the Benedictines. and. Uh, so I was sharing Guanyin Bodhisattva with them, and they were saying, same place in the heart. What that image, where those, Im those images, Guanyin Bodhisattva, the Blessed Virgin, arise like leaves come from the roots of the tree. The root of the image is the human heart and our need for compassion, our need to re-stitch ourselves into the fabric of living beings to reconnect that brokenness that comes when big me, right? Only thing taller than this is God, right, buddy, right? Just me, right? This big self gets in the way and breaks us from true seeing, which is a deeper connection. So those images of compassion come from that same place, different names, same need. and. You know, Vipassana is wonderful. Occasionally it gets a little dry. Zazen is the same. You analyze, analyze, analyze. You look in, you look in, you empty out. And if you keep going and empty it, what you find at the other end is not nothing but everybody. You have to keep moving through it till it's really empty. And then Karuna and Prajna become the palm of the hand and the back of the hand. In East Asia, devotional Buddhism is the practice. When you go to monasteries in China, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, <coughs> you don't see zafus very much. You see bowing benches, recitation beads, and these images of Amitabha, Avalokiteshvara, Mahastamaprakta. By far, by far, the dominant practice in East Asia is devotional Buddhism. Emptying the heart and connecting with these great compassion. Interesting, huh? We Americans, we meditate. We like to sit. Maybe because we're going too fast, and we know that. So we have to slow down, bow to more sutras. The Buddha got enlightened Underneath the tree His mind was like a round full moon He entered samadhi He put on samadhi shoes Put on Samadhi shoes. They walk me down the road, the Tao, the way. 
And I gotta go put on some muddy shoes I need concentration Never be confused They walk me down the way The Dow And I gotta go put on some muddy shoes Well, I held my precepts purely Sitting in the hall But when I walked out that Zendo door I couldn't hold those rules at all Till I put on some muddy shoes Put on some muddy shoes Well, they walk me down the road And I've got to go put on some muddy shoes Give me concentration Never more confused They walk me down the road And I've got to go put on some muddy shoes This is one for you guys My parents used to bug me I could do nothing right Until they learned to meditate Now they never get uptight Cause they put on samadhi shoes Put on samadhi shoes They walk me down the road And I gotta go put on samadhi shoes I need concentration Never be confused Walk me down the way And I gotta go put on some muddy shoes Well, I meditate each morning Then I join the marketplace Because I wear some muddy shoes There's a smile upon my face Even stuck on the Richmond Bridge In traffic I put on some muddy shoes Put on some muddy shoes they walk me down the road and I gotta go put on some muddy shoes I need concentration, never be confused They walk me down the road and I gotta go put on some muddy shoes Samadhi tames my senses, I turn consciousness around my thoughts flow like a gentle stream And I hear compassion sound Cause I put on Samadhi shoes You can sing Put on Samadhi shoes They walk me down the road And I gotta go put on Samadhi shoes Give me concentration Give me concentration Never be confused They walk me down the road And I gotta go put on Samadhi shoes Put on Samadhi shoes Put on Samadhi shoes That song was born right here, Spirit Rock. Uh, anybody who has considered the possibility of going to the family camp, I recommend it if you haven't done that. Family camp here in the summer is terrific. Uh, Monet, are there places? Can you, are there still any spots available, or are they all filled up? I think the um, registration doesn't start until the beginning of April. There you go. Recommended. Great fun. Uh, there are people at the uh, family camp who come back year after year after year. It's terrific. Well, um, I'd like to thank everybody for spending this um, evening with inviting me to be here. Um, I teach at the Graduate Theological Union. Tomorrow's my class. Whew. 13 students pre-registered, 28 showed up. It's just like third grade. I got to call the roll. These are <laughs> theologians, right? And Sally, here. Uh -huh. you know. And uh, it, the class is called With God on Our Side. It's a class in spiritual biography, learning or studying about people who use scripture to make peace and people who abuse the same scripture to make war. Mm, pretty interesting how plastic scripture can be. Uh, so far we studied, uh, we asked Alan Jones, a Methodist minister, to come in and talk about his 12 years of apprenticeship with Reverend James Lawson. Anybody know Reverend James Lawson? African-American uh, Methodist who spent two years in India studying with Gandhi. It's amazing how people don't know about Reverend James Lawson. He studied Gandhian principles of Satyagraha, came back and taught the students in Nashville to put on three-piece suits 
to get ready. He had abuse laboratories. He put them there and subjected them to slander and, and spitting. Got them ready, he said. You win when you don't fight. And they marched in to the city of Nashville, sat down at the lunch counters, had people yank them off the stools, spit on them, call them names. The next wave of students politely sat down on the benches. They all wound up in jail. The jails had 6,000 people in them, stopped the jails. And then somebody, some ignorant person, bombed the house of a prominent African-American lawyer who was defending the students, and that was the catalyst. All of Nashville marched on City Hall, and this young uh, white girl who'd been jailed in the first wave of students said to the mayor, she said very politely, she said, Your Honor, can you say to me and to all of America, the cameras were on, right, can you say to me and all of America that you really in your heart believe that because somebody looks differently, or comes from a different part of the world, that they should be refused service, that their money is no good in your stores? And he said, I can't really say that. I don't believe that in my heart, said the mayor. It might have been, I can't really say that. I don't believe it in my heart, <laughs> he said. And that broke it. That was the end. And the uh, Nashville had gone on a boycott. They had boycotted the stores for a month. And all the merchants were putting pressure on City Hall to get people in the stores. Well, that was the end, and the laws are rewritten, and Nashville was desegregated because of Reverend James Lawson. So, uh, Alan Jones told about his 12 years of study with him. And uh, if you see, a, there's a, a PBS series called A Force More Powerful out there that documents that incredible footage of these students looking just perfectly balanced, disciplined calm, compassionate, marching in line into the lunch counters, getting yanked off their stools, not fighting back. Powerful footage. Anyways, that, that's what we talk about. Last week we had, uh, uh, two weeks ago we had uh, uh, a Roman, we had a, a Benedictine monk telling us about Cesar Chavez, who was a Roman Catholic and whose fasting came from his faith and, and also about Dorothy Day. Uh, last week was a Muslim talking about Badshah Khan, who turned, he had an army, 10,000 Pathans, who were basically uh, Afghanis, the world's toughest fighters, became a peaceful army. He was influenced by Gandhi, and uh, so, so forth. I'm going to talk about Buddhism. We've got Native American spirituality coming up. And we have a rabbi coming in, Bert Jacobson. He's going to talk about, uh, um, he's going to talk about, uh, um, issues in Jewish peace building. So, great course. Anyway, if I do say so. Um, I teach at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. If you come over uh, next Thursday, not this coming, but the following Thursday, um, you can see for yourself whether the Blessed Virgin and Guanyin Bodhisattva look alike. Okay, uh, last thing we're going to do is dedicate merit, and uh, those of you, maybe some of you have heard this before, um, in the Mahayana, as in, you know, in, in the Theravada, our, our neighbor's monastery, Abhayagiri, Ajanamara and Pasano, they go, May the goodness that arises from my practice and from this act of sharing, right? They dedicate merit, so we do the same. Only ours was Yuan Yi Tsi Gong De Zhuang Yan Fu Jing Du. That doesn't help you, right? That's Chinese. <laughs> so we put it into English and we borrowed a tune from Lorena McKennett, uh, The Dark Night of the Soul, St. John of the Cross. She, she gave permission. She says, as long as you don't sell it, you can use this. So uh, we put the, the Dedication of Merit tune, Dedication of Merit translation to the Lorena McKennett tune and uh, it came out okay. So what I would like you to do, and you guys can lead us, okay? Go into your heart and take the blessings, take the goodness that comes from being together in this peaceful place, in this wonderful valley, Northern California, doing what we're doing, which is looking into wisdom and compassion, how to be kind to each other, how to stop hurting each other. All those blessings and that goodness is something we can actually give away. We can share it. And we do it because minds touch. Where's the fence that keeps my mind from your mind? They touch. And because they touch, we can use that connection 
to send goodness out. Now you do it with a wish, whatever wish you might have for that merit. You might have a personal wish, maybe that someone who you know who's sick gets better soon, that they rec recover their health. Your wish might be that someone you know gets into Stanford, who knows, whatever your wish might be, maybe Harvard, maybe Cal. Um, whatever your wish might be, you might have a social wish that AIDS leave the planet. Who says that virus has to be here? Right? It came, it can go. Send out your merit with that wish. You might have a wish that wars stop. You might have a universal wish that all beings become Buddhas or bring forth the great resolve for Bodhi, that all beings lead a Christ-like life, whatever your wish might be. That's your wish. So send out that merit and let's do it together. When we do it with our hearts in unison, it really gets power. Okay? So I'll do the melody and as you make the wish and then when we're done, um, is that it? No more announcements? We're done? Okay. And we'll, we'll finish and carry that goodness out into the world. Passion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. 